yeah, it's really what gets me out in the morning. It's what I find interesting and really exciting about this project. Often they're not profit maximizers. Often they are projects I do because, you know, damn it, I love it. Yeah. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Curious. In the day, I work a normal job as a doctor. But in my spare time, I've challenged myself to interview other people with interesting career paths, hobbies or side projects. The goal is to share their stories and to draw inspiration and wisdom for the rest of us. This is the Alternative CV Podcast. Hey listeners, once again, a special announcement before we begin. I'm Paul, aka Dr. Curious from this podcast. I'm trying to get to know you, my listeners, all of you great people better. And I'd love to know what you enjoy reading, who you are, you know, what kind of things you're interested in. Basically, I'm trying to get to know all of you better so that I can serve you better. I'd love to hear from you. So get in touch with me. Email me directly at paul at alternativecv.fm. That's P-A-U-L at alternativecv.fm. And once again, I'm going to read out a review from today and to give a shout out to the kind person who left it. So thank you very much today to Lindy Brito. That's B-R-I-T-O, Lindy, from Brazil. I thankfully came across this podcast through Ali Abdal's newsletter. And Ali was my guest in episode one and two. I enjoyed these episodes a ton. Keep doing it. So thank you very much, Lindy. I'd love to connect with you. Email me as well if you're listening to this episode. Today's podcast episode is with Mr. Lolik Ping, who has 27 restaurants with seven, seven, Michelin, seven Michelin stars, two chef hats, and five hotels in six countries. He runs Unlisted Collection, which is an umbrella for a number of boutique hotels and restaurants across Singapore, Shanghai, and London. This is part two of my conversation with Mr. Lo. And this episode jumps around a little bit more, but it's packed, chock full of great advice. We talk about Peng's leadership style, which is mostly about empowering and trusting his staff, how he finds the right people, how he promotes initiative, and just some general advice for chefs and others who are interested in following his footsteps. We talk about passion versus practicality and how to balance the two. And most importantly, how you can build a team around you that you can rely on to work across the world. Mr. Lole Ping was born in Dublin, Ireland, then attended law school in England in the University of Sheffield, and then subsequently did postgraduate studies in the London School of Economics before finishing his bar exams in London and then returning to Singapore. He then worked as a corporate litigator before finally leaving the profession to step into the hospitality industry. If you'd like to know more about this journey from law to the hospitality industry and how Mr. Lowe set up his company, Unlisted Collection, then listen to part one. But without further ado, here is the second half of my conversation with Mr. Lolek Ping. Please enjoy. Another inflection point, right, is when you kind of brought your businesses overseas. So which part of it, you know, every project which you bring is unique. Like you don't re- repeat the same designers, you more or less do something which is completely different, theme, style, etc. Which bit would you say is replicable? Is it the lessons which you carry with you, the business, you know, the, the model of putting together a team? Is that, is that how it operates? You know, the reality is that once you, you get the hang of sort of, and you know the steps to opening a property, you can pretty much bring 
a lot of those processes wherever you go in the world because running a hotel is not that different whether you're in Australia or China or, 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 or UK or anywhere else in the world for that matter. And there's a, there's a, there's a lot of confidence also to, from taking, that you take away from successful successfully delivering uh, you, know, you know a few of these projects mm. and we have done that perhaps across a wider range than most people um, and we tackle particularly difficult projects right we do these heritage buildings in mm-hmm. in uh, <laughs> often <laughs> unconventional in, in, locations yeah unconventional yeah. locations so after a while you you figure out what you are able to do and and what you shouldn't do um, and so I found that nowadays when I look at a project wherever it is in the world, I get a good sense of whether I can tackle it or whether it might turn out to be workable or not. And, you know, I get presented a lot of projects. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten, you like, no, forget it, right? It's not mm-hmm. going to work. Um, and one that one time you find a gem and, and you just do it, I guess. Yeah, so some, something which you've mentioned before is that you look for buildings with your criteria, buildings with like character, strong local flavor, areas that are close to the center of the town, good transport links, interesting local communities. Is that is that is that it? Is that yes, it? and and also to uh, I I like to find, I guess buildings in unloved neighborhoods, right? Neighborhoods that are yet to undergo gentrification, but yet you feel might have the potential to do so. So. Often when I arrive at a you know a city first, London, Sydney, if you go to the very most prime areas where it's obvious uh, that a hotel should be, then mm. you'll find that often you can't afford to, to build anything in those areas. Mm-hmm. You can't afford to buy anything in those areas. So I always try and look for unloved neighborhoods, but that are close to where the action is and where you think there might be potential. Um, and that's really my strategy. And and then I in those neighborhoods, I try and find really cool buildings, you know. Um, and they often are kind of old buildings, buildings with a lot of history, a lot of character. Sometimes they are disused industrial buildings like, um, you know, uh, breweries. Sometimes they're old town halls. I've looked at warehouses, all sorts of crazy mm-hmm. things, right? And, and I find often those buildings are, are the ones that are really interesting. So is this gentrification thing, is it like a gut feel that you have or... I don't know whether it's a gut feel, you know. You yeah. you can't ever um, assume that a, a neighborhood will gentrify, right? You you hope that it does, um, but how do you know? You don't. And and the issues around gentrification are extremely complex, you know. And 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 in a new city, you can't hope to know. But I would say, I like to go to neighborhoods where I feel there's a lot of local action. Mm-hmm. Um, and by local action, I mean a very active local community. I don't mean necessarily um, lots of tourists, right? And mm-hmm. I've always figured if uh, lots of locals like a place, then it's got lots of potential. To what extent do you think your properties have helped to drive gentrification? Because, you know, people have joked once that Kyungsak Road should be called Peng Street because of how, you know, how many of your... Uh, properties and restaurants have been there. Uh, would you say that that has that your that the, these boutique hotels have been uh, launched? Really, I in I, I think it's it's a far more complex um, matter than someone just setting up a hotel. Gentrification happens because of a whole bunch of so different socioeconomic factors, right? And you know, people have credited me with gentrifying Kyongsek Road and things like that. I I happen not to. 
want to take credit for that because <laughs> it's such a large, uh, different kind of movements, right? And we happened to be there at the right time and we rode the wave. And, and I, if I look back on it, um, would the street have gentrified if I wasn't there? Yes. Mm. So can I take credit for it? No. I, I was lucky in that I happened to be there the right time and the right place. And that movement was going to happen. Did I see it happening? Did I say, oh, this is going to gentrify, hence I got to plonk myself there? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> you know, I just found a cool building in what I thought was a very interesting neighborhood. And it was. Um, and I thought, well, you know, a lot of Singaporeans may think this is a dirty kind of red light area. But I said, if I'm a, a tourist and I was coming from America, I might find this neighborhood interesting mm. because it was really local, right? You had all these old uncles and singlets and flip-flops. And then you had your kind of uh, uh, red light sort of uh, <laughs> ladies of the night. And it mm. was a very colorful neighborhood. It was really cool. And I thought it was really cool. And that was my impression. I never thought, oh, I'm going to plonk myself here and then hope that property prices go through a roof as the, as the area gentrifies. So, so I, I, you know, I, as I said, I think I was, I was there and I rode the wave, um, but would it have gentrified anyway? Yes, I think so. Mm. Kind of semi-related semi question. Mm. When you go overseas, mm. you seem like the kind of person where, say, if we went on a, on a, on a holiday together, you would say, hey, you know, I would take you to, the, to where the locals like mm. really hang out. This is where mm. the locals will eat rather than, you know, num number one on TripAdvisor or something. Yep. Yeah. I, would you say when you're traveling alone, do you make a point to check out some cool, interesting, like local flavored places? I do. I, I'm one of these uh, uh, curious people who will try and dig out where an interesting local restaurant is or, or where um, some interesting um, neighborhood might be. I do enjoy um, exploring. I, I have much less opportunity to, to do it now than I used to. But I used to go explore different cities just for the sake of plonking myself in unfamiliar surroundings and trying to find the most um, challenging way of, of uh, <laughs> visiting a city, right? And that might involve going to yeah different neighborhoods and trying to find some obscure restaurant. Um, but I find I, I do it less and less now, partly because I find my travels take me back to places <laughs> where I already have visited. Plus, I, 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 you know, I have a young family now and it's increasingly hard for me to take all this long periods away yeah. and just do these things. But how do you, how did you used to do it? Like, was it just a, a map? Do you ask locals? Or, yeah. Often you, I, I would, I would turn up in a city with, with a little guide and I'd speak to people and try and find lo interesting locals or, or friends or friends. Then I asked them, Hey, where's an interesting neighborhood? Where's an interesting restaurant or bar or shops? You know, I used to love going to all these old markets, wherever I w went in the world, I'd try and, turn up at one of these weekend flea markets because I used to love collecting knickknacks. Yeah. I would spend hours going through markets and antique shops and speaking with dealers and going to weird warehouses and in, in God awful neighborhoods. And I used to do all those kind of things. And, and, you know, it was a phase of my life that I would literally travel to go and find a, a dealer somewhere to, you know, to find some obscure chair. Right. Any memorable highlights that you're like, you know, where you come away from it and you're like, wow, can't believe this, that I was there. Yeah, I remember going to, to Amsterdam and, and trying to find this dealer, uh, you know, and, and walking up uh, uh, to this warehouse and 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 passing through some very odd uh, uh, areas and passing through a marijuana um, <laughs> factory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, yeah, I, 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 
uh, naively thought it would be easy to get to, you know, and and uh, in retrospect, it was probably quite dangerous. Uh, at the time, I didn't really think about it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting. So I, I, I've, I wouldn't say I've gotten myself into scrapes, but I've certainly been in slightly strange situations. Yeah, I'm gonna kind of take a completely different turn now. So in in the course of your in 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 my of in the course of my preparation, you I hear that you've mentioned a lot of times the word passion. Mm. Whenever you talk about like yourself and what you do, it invariably comes up. So passion, um, and you call these like projects of passion. Could you could you comment on that? Like, is this a really broad question? Mm. What does and attack it any way you want? Mm. What does passion mean to you, and why is it so important? So you know, one of the things that I I hear often from people. Um, these are more sort of conventional hoteliers and um, uh, and business people. Is often they'll tell me, "Why do you do these sort of projects? It's very hard to make money, right?" And I agree with them. A lot of the projects I do are not that easy to make money from, or they involve an inordinate amount of risk. Um, and my answer to them always is that yes, um, that's because I love doing these kind of projects, right? And if you look at Restoring an old town hall in Bethnal Green, you know, which we did in, in 07, uh, 06, 07, 08. If you had gone to Bethnal Green those days, it's a totally different world, right? Um, mm. and would any conventional developer have done that project? The answer is no. Um, but I did it because I fell in love with that building. It was not a rational decision necessarily that you, you put down on a piece of paper and say, well, this is a great project to do. <laughs> in most instances, people have been like, that's crazy and walked away. So when I say passion, I mean the ability to kind of reason with yourself that you should do this project because you love it, not necessarily because it makes financial sense or that it, it, it is something that logically, um, you know, most investors think is a, is a, is a good punt. Um, so a lot of my projects, and this includes a lot of the restaurants I do, you wouldn't do those projects if you didn't have a kind of very innate sense of satisfaction from doing it that is uh, removed from from just purely making money or, or doing business. Mm. And that's kind of really what I mean about passion, I guess. And it sustains you? Yeah, it's really what gets me out in the morning. It's what I find interesting and really exciting about this project. Often they're not profit maximizers often they are projects i do because you know damn it i love it yeah mm. it's that sort of feeling how should people think about the balance between say passion and practicality i think you have to always in the back of your mind have an ability to rationalize what the the fallback is and what the ultimate bottom line is and a project should never be just about making money, but you have to have some degree of um, ability to justify why you're doing it, right? And that might mean that you you just about uh, cover your costs and make sure you don't bring yourself down in the meantime. Mm. So you you still need to have that sense of self preservation, but it shouldn't necessarily be all all that drives you. Some projects you do because. Um, it makes your life wonderful and, and worth mm. living. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of like, you know, economic theory and like positive externalities. And then that, that kind of sways the equation towards, yeah, yes, I'll do it. Yes. Yes. Even though 
uh, on paper, it might not make as much sense as Project B, right? Yeah. Um, where you are guaranteed, or not guaranteed, but you are much more likely to make money. But sometimes it's boring. I don't want to build a, a holiday in. I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about something completely different. Um, I'd love to talk about the concept of uh, teamwork and trust. So again, another repeated theme is about how you're the facilitator. And we kind of touched on this earlier before. And I think it kind of almost permeates throughout your entire business because A, your hotels more or less run themselves. Um, in terms of your restaurants, your relationships with chefs is like really good. You're, you're credited with giving people opportunity. You push chefs into a limelight, let them run with their ideas. And often you are the one who is kind of in the background wrapping the rest of the business around them and providing them that support. So you operate with a great deal of trust and it seems like your team really responds to it with great work. Was this your plan from the get-go or was this something, a management style that evolved over the years? I think it was a management style that evolved over the years and, and largely out of necessity. Because I was, uh, uh, you know, starting uh, my hotels overseas and uh, and certainly the first few restaurants, at the time I was, I was, I was such a neophyte that I didn't really have um, the ability to run those businesses. So my quid pro quo to them was that I would give them, um, um, ability to run those businesses how they wanted to, uh, and, and to give them a stake in it, you know, whether it was, uh, was, uh, shares or financials. So I think it was, it was, it was a little bit out of necessity, you know, um, but, you know, bearing that in mind, what I was always um, aware of also was that, that the level of trust had to be very high and the level of um, sort of uh, um, chemistry with the person you know, work with. And I, I, I use the word chemistry with a measure of, of sort of, of caution because um, it's not necessarily chemistry in a friendship way, but chemistry in a way where you are perhaps uh, on a value system able mm. to to relate to someone you know and 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 those kind of relationships can then be extremely rewarding you know you give someone the ability to to do the best work he can uh, you look after the aspects where you you are able to but it involves giving that person you know as much autonomy in his role as as you can uh, sort of uh, imagine you know and 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 I think if you pick the right people, that's a really winning formula. Yeah, it sounds a lot like teamwork, really. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And this is something which you kind of mentioned just now. You you look for that right off the bat when hiring? I try to. You don't always get it right. But I've been fortunate, really fortunate, in, in that the vast majority of the people I've I've worked with have turned out to be gems, you know, the vast majority. And you have this really rewarding, very long-term relationships with them. Mm. Is there anything particular that you will ask, say, in an interview? Or how do you establish that this is somebody who you can trust? I don't really ask a lot of questions. I spend time talking to them, uh, try and find out what they like, what the, the things that really rock their boat, you know, things that are interesting for them. And it takes a little bit of process, uh, back and forth, a, a process of kind of getting to know someone, um, and looking at what they've done, they've before. done before in life and, and how they've sort of dealt with certain things, you know. And often the people that I've worked with, um, people like Dave Pint at Burn Ends, you know, Clayton Wells at Automata, I've known for, for a fair amount of time because they've worked with me on other projects before. Mm. 
so by that stage, you know, you you kind of get a measure of the person already, um, and I think that that has been helpful for me uh, in kind of uh, measuring someone and what they are capable of and and whether or not you know they can then be trusted to kind of run your businesses. Mm. And it's the same with the GMs of my hotels. You know, often a lot of it is just personal chemistry, getting to know them at a level where you feel that you are able to, because, you know, a lot of our businesses are far flung around the world and we rely on our managers to be able to run them um, in a way that, that um, allows me to stay in Singapore. Mm. Um, so, so having the right chemistry, having the right ability to sort of uh, read, people the right way I think is important how do you build the personal chemistry if like they're far flung it requires investment I guess in, in sort of relationships um, and that's something I also find that I I'm not only good at but I also enjoy you mm. know so I find that I I'm able to relate to people and I, I I find that and when I do that I'm able to get a good reading about most people um so I think I've I've had a fair amount of success in picking the right managers over the years, um, you know, to to run my properties overseas. So, but that it's not it's not that I don't know whether there's a formula for it, and and I'm the, I don't know whether it's something I could teach someone or repeat necessarily. <laughs> it's just a, a sort of um, ability to to relate to someone, mm. to read them, and to get a good sense of of whether or not they are. Um, going to be able to to perform that task, I guess. So, say if we take the the example of overseas projects, mm. right? Because I can. This is just my conjecture that it's more difficult to get to know to make hiring choices with people overseas. Mm. How then do you go about evaluating things? So, how would you say if you had, if you had a new project? How would you recruit your team? I always start off um, perhaps uh, uh, counterintuitively with. Uh, I give you an example, maybe a better way of illustrating it. I when I when I went to Sydney um, to start the Old Clare, bought the building. I I really sort of uh, um, when I started work on the construction and started working with designers, I really made an effort to go out and immerse myself in the city mm. in terms of getting to know the scene, when the, whether it's restaurants, hotels, things like that. I went to all the design fairs, all the different uh, events. Uh, throughout that period, you know, and I intensely sort of sought out uh, opportunities to meet people. And so I deliberately went about, um, and not, not not necessarily sort of people who were always relevant in what I was looking at, you know, but um, could have been art fairs, things like that, <laughs> all mm. sorts of things. And it seemed, it can seem like a waste of time, um, but you know, you start getting to know people, you start putting your feelers out, people know you're doing a hotel, and pretty soon people start um, mentioning so-and-so to you, then you meet them. So I always try and do that. Whenever I, I, I start a project in a new city, I make an effort to really kind of deeply get myself mm -hmm. into uh, sort of the scene in the city, you know, mm. and meeting different people, musicians, artists, things like that. You, you start getting a feel for who's uh, movers or shakers in the city are. You try and make yourself... Uh, a little bit interesting to them. And, and from that, I, I started getting contacts. You know, I picked up uh, a few tips about uh, where the interesting places are, who the interesting people were. And from that, I, I started um, making connections and I 
hired the first two or three people and from there it kind of grew mm. organically um, and it's something I've done a few times now I did that in London too um, and at the same time it's, it's so it's so much fun doing that but yeah. it requires a, a huge amount of effort and um, I don't know whether I could do it now again you know uh, if I had to start a, a something in say Madrid or something could I spend months doing that sort of strategy going there and spending weeks just uh, you know, hanging around mm-hmm. um, dive bars and talking to interesting people and attending lots of art fairs and and festivals and things like that. I think I'd find it harder now with the family that I have. Um, so a lot of things I do perhaps was a different phase of my life. You mm. know, um, yeah, it'd be interesting for me if I had to start from scratch now uh, in a new city. Yeah, but I I love how it's it's such an organic way of. Kind of getting to know people, and and you mentioned musicians, artists, which are yeah. kind of a bit far removed from, say, the hotel industry. But somehow you work your way there, yeah. and you find out the people who are interesting and legit. Because I always find the art scene kind of the crucible of of a city, right? It's where all the creative energy starts from, and and if you run the hotels uh, that I do, then it's important to be, I guess, credible with the creative set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not just about um, it's not just about trustworthiness. It's also kind of about initiative, mm. right? Um, is there any way in which you say build initiative into your organization? Is is it is it um, a organizational culture, or is it something you work into the pay structure? Okay, so both. That's a really good question. I think for me, um, whenever I meet someone that I'm potentially going to hire for a top position in my in any of my organizations, my, the first thing I, I let them know is that, you know, I, I require someone who is uh, of the mindset of, of running his own business because mm. often I'm not going to be there overseeing them on a day-to-day basis, right? If, you're, if I'm looking to hire a GM in London, I've got to hire someone who's a self-starter, someone who is, um, you know, uh, not going to require me to motivate them they're going to be someone who is um, ability to act independently, to, to make decisions independently. And and therefore, I will pay them accordingly. You know, we will structure mm-hmm. our pay such that they get a percentage of the bottom line, things like that. Mm. So I, I do try and find people with those sort of attitudes. So partly it's, it's how you reward them and partly it's finding those people, the people who are able to act autonomously and not have you micromanage them. I couldn't possibly run... Uh, hotels in London and Australia and, and Ireland and all this without, uh, you know, finding the right managers to manage them. Has there ever been cases, there must be, have been cases where it didn't really work out for you, that this autonomy and, and how do you deal with such situations? You know, I have to say so far it hasn't, I haven't encountered uh, a big problem with, uh, with uh, delegating to someone who wasn't capable. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the hotel side, um yeah so far we we've been lucky we've we've managed to more or less uh, find the right people and they've tend to have stuck with us for many years because they are the kind of people who thrive in in making their own decisions i guess yeah in some of the books that i've read there's they they kind of make a decision a distinction between delegation and abdication yes. so delegation meaning that you yeah. you give people the rope and the space to do what they want but abdication meaning that you completely mm. You you know you you're completely out of the picture. Mm. Um, what parameters do you, do you set out to say that this is the box within which you can operate? Okay, so for me, I leave the day to take decisions with my 
managers, there's always a, a mandate within which they can operate. And that mandate is fairly liberal. Um, but when, you know, we always keep an eye on, on deliverables. So mm -hmm. I set them, um, KPIs, KPIs, targets, budgets at the, at the year, beginning of the year. And that's broken down to months and things. And I track that. Right. And if they meet those uh, goals, I seldom have have a reason to intervene. So, you know, for example, I, I, I will see weekly reports, monthly reports, daily reports. Mm -hmm. um, so I get a good sense of how the businesses are doing, whether the the uh, businesses are performing. Mm -hmm. And and from that, I get a, a good enough reading that if if things slow down for long enough, I, I ask some questions. Um, I'll, I'll prompt uh, certain sort of uh, conversations um, and I'll see how it goes, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, businesses don't always perform 100% the way you want it to, but but I keep a close enough eye that I'll I'll know quick, fairly quickly if, if something is falling off the rails. And then do you give like chances kind of? Yeah, and always. And then after that? Always, yeah. because people are people, right? They make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time. Mm. And if uh, and if I got fired for the first mistake I I. I made, then I, I certainly wouldn't have progressed very far in life. Um, but, but I'm always also aware of the financials of a business, what's sitting in a bank account, what comes in, what goes out. And that you can do fairly, uh, well nowadays because online banking, right? Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> so I, I, I always have a fairly reasonably good feel of how businesses are doing. Mm -hmm. And I keep in touch with my managers. I speak to them at least once or twice a week. Mm -hmm. just kind of wrapping up um can we talk about parenting sure yeah so you've had a wide variety of experiences you know you were in boarding school when you were young mm. you then came back to singapore you trained and worked in a traditional professional job then you went off to do something which is unconventional but really fun filled by your by your passion so thinking back on all this what do you think has been the most instructive to you and kind of related to that what kind of principles or experiences do you want to pass on to your children? I think one of the things that I've um, found to be, um, I guess, the, the most useful for me, um, looking back, and it's not something I, I necessarily would have recognized when I was younger, is the sense of um, being able to um, be independent and, and sort of be able to um, feel that you can rely on yourself to do something, right? And I think that that partly had to do with the fact that when I went off at a young age, you learn to to fend for yourself because um, you know you can't run home to mummy if somebody bullies you, right? Um, mm. So you learn to look after yourself. You learn to have a sense of um, ability to to look inside for the answers if if necessary. And I, I found that to be um, useful in all aspects of, of my life. Um, and it's something that I, I would love to be able to pass on to my children. I don't necessarily have a formula for it. I don't really know if I can do it or how to do it. <laughs> but if I could, I think that would be one of the things I would like to do. Yeah. 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 So kind of saying, what do you, what do you think the answer is rather than giving it straight out? Yes. And, and also the ability to, um, work through problems, you know, because f for damn sure you're going to find some problems in whatever mm. uh, you do in life, uh, whether it's classroom or, or work or personal things, right? Uh, always issues. How do you work through those uh, problems methodically and not let them overwhelm you? I think if you look at a lot of the, 
sort of things with stress, with depression and things like that. I find a lot of it is just people let problems overwhelm them, you know, mm-hmm. and and sometimes you let the problem be bigger than than it should be. Uh, in your mind, you mean? In your mind, yeah. yeah. And and so I've uh, tried to always to cultivate this ability to break problem, big problems into small problems mm. and then tackle them one at a time. Uh, if you look at a problem as a gigantic kind of mountain to climb, often it's, it looks insurmountable. I've I've always found that if I can break problems down to one step at a time, and it may take you a while, you just tackle them one at a time mm. and not let the, the big heap overwhelm you, you know? Yeah, and it cuts back to what we were talking about earlier about fear, paralysis, being mm. back to the corner, break the problem down, mm. and attack it one at a time. Take Tackle one at a time. Just do one thing at a time and, and move forward, one step forward, two steps back sometimes, but you just, mm. you just keep plowing ahead, right? And I think that determination to see through the issue um it's always a it's always a something that you can you can uh, solve uh, a lot of things with because uh, you know um yeah I, i always equate it to sort of sort of ants building this gigantic you know if you look at like david attenborough has this series where this little um ants have built this gigantic monumental structures right mm-hmm. these uh Uh, in the desert and it's basically built up over hundreds of years from this bit yeah big by bit and this is monumental goes on for you know many square miles and it's huge and you couldn't imagine ants doing that yeah um, but if you i guess so you know if you tackle problems one at a time you could i, th- I think lots of things can be solved any advice for young people who kind of want to do the things which you're doing like say putting projects together like this i personally think that if you know that maybe the biggest problem that you run up against is a lack of capital is there any way around that there's very little way around it in a, in in somewhere like singapore i would say that's why i'm saying in in my early years i got caught a lucky break i went through a recession and i and i was able to do those things would i be able to do it in today's environment um not the kind of thing i was doing certainly in so i i think the 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 time to do projects and and to kind of get yourself out often is is when when times are really bleak actually mm. um if you have um ability to kind of um you know next recession is coming through i i think fairly soon <laughs> and that that often is an opportunity i found for myself The best opportunities has always come from um, a time when people are a little bit scared, you know, um, and it takes a little bit of courage to do it. Um, but in the context of Singapore, you're, you are absolutely right. Um, in most things, having capital is, is re- really important and the ability to raise funds um, is important. And I guess, you know, I think in, in, in the sort of world that I am in now, restaurants, hotels, Do people really want to fund those things? External investors, maybe not. So the, the time, the things that I was doing, you know, 20 years ago, are maybe not mm. the things you should be doing now um, and, and raising funds for. It's a different world. Yeah. If I had to start over again, uh, would I have the same traction? No, because Singapore is a different place now. Um, so, you know, the, the, I, I don't want to sign, sound really sort of uh, um, dismissive or, or a little bit sort of flippant about it, but... Um, Really, it's 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 about f- sort of finding the niche that you can make the biggest impact on, right? Mm. And and that's not the kind of niche that I 
pursued 20 years ago for sure. Yeah, so that that's an interesting question. Say we we took away every all the success that you had now, right? And and we magically made you 20 again, mm. like right now. Mm. So you had your years and maybe you your experiences and what you know now, mm. but none of all this. Mm. Where, what kind of space would you be interested in? What, what would you see yourself doing? You know, I, it's a really good question. I'd like to do something digital because I've seen certainly in my uh, very short, um, relatively short career, how much um, the digital side has transformed and, and disrupted things from hotels to restaurants, um, you know, to different fields like law and things like that. I would try and do something digital because, mm. uh, you know, in my, as I said, in the last five, six years, the transformation I've seen, the the speed of it, and the comprehensiveness of its uh, of its spread uh, has really surprised me. So I think um, if I had to start all over again, if I was nineteen, twenty years old, if I had the same sort of uh, uh, outlook on life <laughs> uh, now as I did then, and I had the the sort of uh, the same sort of uh, circumstances, you know, meaning I, I didn't have too much commitments in life, I'd try and do something digital. I think. Mm. any advice for chefs you've worked with so many you've helped to bring a lot of them through yeah what? i i always try and tell prospective chefs and i get a lot of them coming to me mm. with proposals that restaurants are ultimately businesses you know you need that artistic side but a restaurant is not an artistic endeavor you you have to have enough customers who like the food you do and the concept that you have, and it can't always be a tasting menu of eight courses and nothing else, <laughs> right? That's mm. the reality. Uh, you know, the 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 kind of uh, restaurants that can succeed doing that kind of thing are, are vanishingly small. It's not it's not something that most chefs can pull off. Mm. Last question. Um, I'm I'm really amazed by how many interviews you've given, and there's so much wisdom in there. Do you, do you like say yes to? Was everything? Uh, just so, <laughs> I certainly just tried incredible. my best to. I, I certainly try my best to because you know the vast majority of people who approach me are, are really earnest. They're really nice people. They they are not. Um, you know they they are just and I, wherever I can, I always accommodate. Um, mm. And I I always get something out of it too. Mm. Um, but yeah, if I can, I always try and say yes. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Loth. I hope you've got something out of today's conversation. I did. It's been a really interesting one for me. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Alternative CV Podcast. As always, show notes as well as links to everything that we've talked about can be found on the website alternativecv.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or learned something from it, do consider sharing it with your friends. Also, please consider subscribing to this podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. Most importantly though, please consider leaving a review as it helps other people discover this podcast via the iTunes algorithms. If you have any feedback about how I can improve or any suggestions about guests you'd like to see me interview on this show, do get in touch at hello at alternativecv.fm. See you next time.